is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 00511, Verizon Communications versus FCC, WorldCom versus Verizon, FCC versus Iowa Utilities Board, Iowa Utilities Board versus General Communications. Mr. Barr. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I'd like to start with a brief illustration that I think will help crystallize the legal issues, both the so-called forward-looking issues and the historical cost issues. The illustration itself starts with a forward-looking perspective. Now, any firm that operates and builds a network incurs three costs going forward. Let's say I, the hypothetical new entrant, capable of coming in today and instantaneously deploying the most efficient network possible today. I would have to expend my baseline facility costs. And let's say the FCC is right. Let's say that costs about $180 billion to reproduce the system today from scratch. Then I would face my operating costs that are dictated by the network that I just built. Let's say those are $75 billion a year. And then I would face the incremental capital investment that I would make each year to upgrade and expand the network. Let's say that's $30 billion a year. Now, let me show why, under Telerik, no firm that actually makes expenditures can recover them. What, what, what was your second cost, the 75? The 75 is operating cost, uh, dictated year, by year. the network that I've deployed. Per year? Per year which is how much our operating costs are per year. And the first was, was the, the — Building the network from just scratch. N- not, the, not, the, not the debt uh, uh, debt service on building it? No. But the building it? Yes. That's a, that's a one-time cost, not yes. an annual. That's the sunk capital cost. But you're using no. the depreciated figure, the 180 million. No, I'm starting — I'm starting — yeah, that's the, yes. that's the initial construction. I'm not, I'm not talking about me as the incumbent. I'm talking about someone new coming in today. Mm. So you've, you've presented three questions. Uh, is, is your illustration and what you're about to discuss devoted to all three questions or to one in particular? Well, I'm going to show it's devoted to all three, and I'm going to show how Telric does not, going forward, permit the recovery because it bases compensation for someone who has already expended money on a network on the imaginary cost structure of a hypothetical entrant who can be unconstrained and who's capable at any given time of instantaneously deploying and ubiquitously deploying a brand-new network that's the most efficient at that point. Now, if you look at my $180 billion that I've just spent on building this network, in the world of Telric, I now face the prospect of people springing up on a daily basis who are capable of taking advantage of any new technology and any change in demographics and configuration to beat the efficiency of my network. And, my, and, and, and with that hypothesis, I won't be able to recover my costs unless I have a high rate of return and fast depreciation. Well, well, we, we've said in, in, in a number of cases, going back 50 years, that if you're talking about an unreasonable rate of return or a taking or something that has constitutional implications, uh, you, you can't attack the method uh, because 
different methods can work out differently. You have to point to some un, uh, unjust final result, and there hasn't been any final result here. Well, well, Your Honor, I think that what the Court has done is made distinctions between ends and means. Now, there can't be discretion under the Constitution as to how much is due. That can't be discretionary, or else no, that eviscerates the just compensation clause. What our view is that when you have a regime of compelled service where the government says you've got to spend the money to provide a mandated service, the taking occurs at the point of expenditure. And that means the government has to give me a chance to get that, a fair opportunity to get that money back. Now, what the government has discretion over is the means as to get me that money back. State commissions, are they not? Excuse me, Your Honor? Uh, aren't, aren't these costs and fees going to be ultimately set by state commissions applying the FCC rules? The rates themselves will be set by, by the state commissions implementing a methodology. And we are complaining about the methodology well, because — Well, that's just what the cases say you can't do, it seems to me. Going back to the Stone's opinion 50 years ago, uh, the opinion of the court in Duquesne, that you can't attack the methodology unless you can point to some something wrong in the actual fee that you're allowed or the rate that you're allowed. Well, Your Honor, I think the Court has always reviewed methodologies. Now, sometimes rates can be evidence of a defect in a methodology, but it doesn't have to be. And in the Duquesne case itself, the Court said if the methodology is not compensating you for a methodological risk to which you were exposed, that's a problem today. And that is our claim, that the methodology itself exposes us to a risk of not recovering what we spend. And, and we are entitled to compensation for that risk. If the taking of — Excuse me, ju just a risk? It's, I mean, but there's always a risk, I suppose, until you get the final determination by whoever the rate maker is. I thought our prior cases held that so long as, so long as it's possible under the, under the rate structure for you to be compensated fully, you have no complaint until, you know, until the final, uh, the final rate is determined. At that point, you can come in and complain. But the mere possibility that they may pick the wrong rate surely is not enough to give you a takings claim. Well — if, 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 if we are correct that we are entitled to a fair opportunity to recover our costs and the government decides that they're going to spin a roulette wheel, I can't come in and say that's a problem, that exposes me to risk. The reason we have — why do we have methodology set in the first place instead of later, uh, instead of later proceedings? We have them to set up front a promise to pay that sets investor expectations and ensures that the users, not the government, is going to end up footing the bill. That's why we have rate-making. And this Court has always reviewed methodologies to determine whether or not they comport with the constitutional standard and whatever Congress has directed in the statute. Now, the, the, it's very important that we focus on the difference between the ends and the means. What, is it, what do you mean when you say, well, the government has discretion over methodology? can't mean that they have discretion as to how much is ultimately due. That takes the court out of the business and just eviscerates the just compensation clause. What it means is that once it's determined that I, have an I should get an opportunity to get my cost back, the government can expose me to risks. The government doesn't have to guarantee it and sign me a check. They can measure my recovery on s with some other formula, as you pointed out in your concurrence opinion in Duquesne, Justice Scalia. They can formulate the methodology in, a in another way. But when you formulate it in another way, when you untether recovery from historical costs or my expenditure, that creates a risk. 
Now, sometimes it may create an opportunity in, in an age of inflation. In an age of deflation, it may cause a risk. But n- num- numerous cases have said that uh, his, uh, uh, the, the rate-making agency is not required to follow histori- — to adopt historical costs as the method of fixing rates. That's the method. But the objective has to be an opportunity of getting me back my costs. What — when, when I am required to spend money by the government, when I'm required to spend money by the government, let's say it would cost the government a billion dollars today to provide a public good and service. And the government, instead of spending that today, which anyone would have to spend, comes to me and conscripts my private capital into building this thing for a billion dollars. And then later says, well, I don't have to worry about getting you back a billion dollars. That's not my business. I have discretion over a methodology. The question, what is meant by discretion on a methodology, is that the government can expose you to risk as long as it compensates you for the risk. And that's exactly what Duquesne said. So you but say the, this case is different from previous rate cases. In the previous rate cases, the expenditure has been made, and the question is fair compensation, just compensation. You say here you're being asked to expend an additional out-of-pocket sum, and you're entitled to know what the methodology is at the outset. Is that, is I'm that, saying that all is that rate, your point? No, my, my point is that all methodologies are the government's promise to pay at the time it takes the property. While the government takes a property in a forced, in, 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 in a regime of compelled service. The taking occurs when I spend the money. If I have $1,000. But, but that's true in any rate-making case. And, and the, the right. Chief Justice and Jessica Scalia are saying, uh, our, our cases say we have to wait to see what the rate is. No, no, I no. thought your position was, well, this is different because we have an initial outlay that we're required to make now. But maybe, I'm not trying to – maybe, well, maybe right. I misunderstand. Well, no, that's right. right. The reason we have methodologies and the reason I'm entitled to know that I have a fair opportunity to recover it is that I shouldn't be forced to spend money, to lay out money, unless I have a fair opportunity to get it back. Well, but your whole argument is assuming – that by adopting this particular methodology, it is some kind of a necessary conclusion that at the end of the day, you're going to be getting less of a return than you would have gotten uh, if an historic cost methodology had, had been employed. And that simply is not true. We don't know whether that is so or not. Well, actually, you know, we do know whether it's so. I was just about to explain on a forward-looking basis. But, but then, then why haven't you come in uh, telling us uh, about rates that you are getting that, in fact, are, are bleeding you dry? You haven't made that argument. That's well, not your because case. we're not compl- – well, there are two reasons. One, we're not complaining about a rate. A rate is evidence of a defect. It is not an appli- – we're not, con- we're not complaining about a specific application. We're complaining about a systemic defect in the methodology. And, and I could understand your argument if that systemic defect had a by, – by some logical necessity, the conclusion of compensating you for what, on traditional standards of review, would be a confiscatory rate. Yes. But there is no such necessity that I can find in your argument. I just don't see where that step comes in. There are you, you don't concede that necessity, do you? No, I don't. Uh, uh, otherwise, you would think that, uh, that, that spinning, a, spinning a wheel of fortune would be an adequate methodology. Right. Rachel, I, well, no, you I, wouldn't, I agree you wouldn't with concede you that, that. That, that, that we would not accept uh, spinning a wheel as, uh, as being adequate, and although spinning a wheel might give you uh, compensation. It might not give you compensation. Who can say? In, uh, in, in, in the Duquesne case, the Court said even a small shift in methodology – warrants an increase in the risk of premium, because you are always entitled to get paid to whatever risk you're exposed to. That's what methodological risk is. 
There are two things on and the face where, of the order. And, and where does the increase in the premium take place? It takes place in state rate making, doesn't it? The, the problem here, uh, the problem here in this order. There but that, th- that is correct, isn't it? That's, 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 that's where no, the, 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 the decision took place in the federal proceeding. And it took place in paragraph 688 and 702 of the order. And if we could look at those paragraphs, we pointed where, where, out. Where do we find them? Uh, Joint Appendix 385-386 and Joint Appendix 395. We pointed out that if you're going to make up a world in which our compensation is constrained as if we had intense competition today, then you should use the same methodology in imputing what the rate of return and what the depreciation would be. You can't imagine I'm in a world of turbocharged technological risk and not give me that rate of return. On page 68, paragraph 688, the government said, well, yeah, you might be entitled to uh, — we understand your argument about a higher rate of return, but you don't have that competition today. And our point is you've created a d- dichotomy between two different worlds, a world that you say is intensely competitive, in fact, in which our network is a commodity, and a world in which you say competition will be gradual and we're still a bottleneck. They've created a dichotomy. Then they say you get your costs back, your direct costs back, as if you were in a world of intense competition. But when it comes to making the methodol, that that exposes us to a methodological risk. The risk of investing a dollar in a world where you, where you have a historical cost methodology and in investing it under Telerik is a different risk. When it, when it comes to making that adjustment, they say you can't do that. We're going to flip-flop. We're going to pretend you're in a world of gradual competition, and that's on paragraph 702, where they say you start with your existing closed market rate of return and your closed market depreciation. And the only time you can make an adjustment is to adjust for actual competition. Well, actual competition is a different risk, because I'm being exposed to Imaginary competition. But, uh, if, if all of that is true and you're exposed to so much greater risk, I assume that your costs of capital will be much higher. It'll be much harder to borrow money. And so all of those risks will ultimately be reflected in the amounts that the state rate-making rate agencies will have to allow you for cost of capital. The states are the, — the issue here is the cost of capital in the UNE business, our wholesale business. Paragraph 702 prohibits the states from taking into account our historical costs, and it says you have to set the rate of return without a view toward recovering those costs. You cannot adjust for the risk. The rule itself, Rule rule 505 and Paragraph 702, the whole point of a methodology is to say, if if I'm going to shift to some other basis of compensation other really, than historical really court. read 702 as saying what you say it says, Mr. Barr. Maybe I'm missing something. Well, Your Honor, it, it, it does say that you, you use — you start with the, the current rate of return and the current depreciation. Correct. It says that we bear the burden in the state proceedings of showing a business risk, and then it goes on to say that the business risk relates to actual competition. And, and, and indeed, in the universal service proceeding — Paragraph 250, four and five. That's the very point Justice Scalia made, that we recognize the incumbent LACs are likely to face increased risks. Uh, oh, no, we may. Also, some, uh, by reason of the increased cost of capital. 
does refer to yeah, they're talking about economic cost of capital. And the key question is which economy in this hypothetical world? Is it the real economy or is it your hypothetical world? Their rule says increases in rate of return are based on actual competition. We are being exposed today to our pricing as if we lived in a world of intense competition in which our product is a commodity where we would need a very high rate of return. And in their universal service proceeding where the FCC applied this methodology, it applied existing closed market rate of return and existing depreciation schedule. In its opening brief on page 8, it said we are authorizing the states to change uh, the rate of return based on actual levels of competition. But the methodological risk is not actual competition. The methodological risk is their cost recovery rule. They're mimicking an intensely competitive market. We gave examples in our brief where Massachusetts tried to make different rates of return and they castigated them for using a different rate of return in the wholesale business than in the retail business. In the retail business, we are exposed to actual competition. In the wholesale business, we are exposed to hypothetical intense competition where our network is deemed to be a commodity, and that's the only price we can derive. If we sell a product in the retail market, we get an opportunity to get our historical cost. If we sell it in the wholesale market, we're deprived of that because the, 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 the cost is brought down without a corresponding increase. There are two things on the face of the order, two things on the face of the order that are blatantly illegal, on their face, without looking at a rate. The first is it says, we are creating a methodological risk, and we're not going to allow an adjustment of the rate of return to reflect that method, methodological risk. We will not even let you look at the delta, the risk of a delta, between your historical cost and whatever this comes up to be. The whole point of a methodology is you have to look at the delta. Even Smith versus Ames said you just don't look at a reproduction cost. You have to look at in relation to historical cost. So, number one, in the rule itself, they say you cannot look at historical cost. You can't say, you know, what's the risk here between one and the other and adjust. The second thing that is facially illegal and, again, has nothing to do with rates is how do they value our input. If we're right that the taking occurs at the point of dedication, at the point of expenditure, then we have a right to have our property valued when we spend it. When I spend operating costs, I have a right to fair opportunity to get those back. But that's true of any utility in those cases that we've We've decided over the And they don't. They don't. What they say is when they value our expenditure, they apply well, who's, their hypothetical who's, just who, yeah. who is they? The FCC rule. Okay. Okay. The FCC rule values our expenditures based on Telric. But Telric is the efficiency that can be achieved by someone who doesn't have a sunk network and therefore has no path dependencies and therefore whose incremental cost is going to be lower than ours. And, and what they say is, you spend $75 billion for operating expense? Well, our Telric guy, you know, he could do it for $50 billion. So you're getting credit for $50 billion. And then on my incremental expenditures, if I, if, if once I build a network and I have it in the ground, I'm path dependent. If I build a, a set of telephone poles to this subdivision and the next year a subdivision opens up over here, Okay? 
The most efficient way for me to provide it is to maybe do a nice big long line over there, and that might cost me $10 million. The FCC says we don't care, because at that point in time, we're going to hypothesize that someone could build a blank slate network and do it for five, because they have the luxury of building it to meet that capacity on a blank slate. Is the government going to tell us that there are other ways you can recover that cost through depreciation? No, because the thing they're depreciating, the thing they're depreciating is the Telric price. This is, this is the, the weirdness of the government's rule. I spend $10 billion. It's necessary, prudent. It's the most efficient way for me to produce. Are they going to tell us you get it back under the cost of capital? Or is no. your answer the same because it's just the capital based on the total? But their briefs talk about cost of capital, but here's the, here's the rub. When they say, well, we're going to value that as if it's five because someone else could be more efficient, a hypothetical person in a perfect market could be more efficient. So we're going to give you five. But don't worry. Something might happen to the rate of return. The rule itself says you cannot adjust the rate of return to recover the historical cost. You can't. And the rate of return they're going to give us is on the five, not on the ten. And the depreciation is of the five, not on the ten. The two defects here, we're entitled to, to the value of what we have to spend. What they do is they take the cost of capital. Excuse me. And you get it back in cost of capital. What cost of capital do they allow you? They allow the cost of capital that exists in a closed market. The pricing that they give us is the pricing that they say would exist if our network were a commodity. With, they don't change for the risk. In other words, if today I spend $10 billion, and that's prudent and necessary, and, I, and I'm in a closed market or a market that's just been opened and I get 15 percent or 12 percent, that's scenario one. Then they turn around and say, these same facilities, you're not going to have to sell to somebody else, not in the retail market where you get 15 percent on $10 billion. Now you have to sell them to your competitors. And there, you're going to get 15 percent on $7 billion. And, and the point is that the risk now that my stuff is going to be valued at 7 instead of 10 is a risk. And the only way I can get compensated is by a higher rate of return. But your, your point there, the answer to Justice Scalia's question, I take it, was forgetting your first problem. That's your first problem, right? right? The one you brought up at the beginning. Correct. The fact that they're pretending Actual competition is what makes the difference, but what the problem arises out of is the fact that they're pricing on a hypothetically perfectly competitive market. At your first point, if that point were wrong, then the answer to Justice Scalia, I take it, would be there's no other problem. I mean, if they did that right and they lowered your new investment from 10 million to 5 million because that was Telric, in principle, they could get your money back for you by giving you a higher rate of return on your on your Telric estimated cost of capital. The rule says no, but, but if you change the rule, yeah. you theoretically could do a high enough rate of return, but it doesn't solve the problem. Where does the rule say no? Give, give, give us the, the exact text where the rule says no. Okay. Paragraph 702 of, of the order. This is yours. I had also asked — it's not in the record. It's a separate ruling, but the universal service proceeding paragraph. This is, this is on — this is a 395 of the Joint Appendix? Yes. This is 
And this is how it has been implemented by the FCC. And can you t show us the language? Yeah, there? we are. What's yes. the language? That, this, that the existing rate of return and existing depreciation are reasonable starting points. No. Starting point. You're yeah, talking starting about Rule point. 707. That's right. 702. 702. 702. This is not a calculation starting point. This is what's in effect. Then we have the burden of showing actual competition. Actual competition. It is not a reasonable starting point, even if it was a temporal exercise, because we are being exposed today to intense competition through the rule. Now, but you're saying Rule 702 prevents you from uh, getting back what you otherwise should have through capital costs? Yes. Uh, yes. Where, in fact, they've admitted this and, in their and brief. Where, what language in Rule 702 are you relying on? Yes. I'm relying on, the, on the, the whole first half of that paragraph, where they say you start with existing we have the burden of showing business risk, and then the remainder of that paragraph talks about actual competition. It's well, not in the record, but it is a separate order. Okay, I, I, but I, I, since you're, you rely on it heavily for a particular proposition, I think you ought to be able to come closer than you have to point out exactly what language supports your position. We recognize that incumbent selects are likely to face increased risks given the overall increases in competition in the industry, which might warrant an increased cost of capital. That's the standard, whether there's actual competition. That's what they say in paragraph 688. We said, look, in the Telric world, we need a higher rate of return. They say, UST's argument unrealistically assumes that competitive entry would be instantaneous. The more reasonable assumption of entry occurring over time will reduce the costs associated with sunk investment. Our point is, Entry is instantaneous under Telric because that's the hypothesis. We're priced as well, if but there was if, instantaneous if the, entry. At the bottom of page 83A, toward the end of seven, Rule 702, it says state, states may adjust the cost of capital if a party demonstrates to a state commission that either a higher or lower level of cost of capital is warranted without the commission conducting a rate of return or other rate-based proceeding. That would seem to allow the state commissions to, to do what you want done. That paragraph, I think a fair reading of that paragraph, and the way it is read and applied, including... Well, what, what about the language I just quoted to you? How do you distinguish that if you, don't, if you don't agree with me? I would distinguish it by then looking at the rule, which is Rule 505, and that's on Joint Appendix 51 and 52. And it tells you what you cannot consider in setting forward-looking costs, including forward-looking cost of capital. And D says, page 52, the following factors shall not be considered in a calculation of the forward-looking economic cost of an element. Embedded cost. Now, cost of capital under B2 is the cost of capital to recover the Telric price, not your historical price. How can — isn't, D1 isn't, on its face — excuse me, Your Honor. No, I, I, I just want to go back to something because I don't understand. Isn't D — I'm sorry. Yeah. Isn't D1 simply talking about the Telric method as opposed to the ultimate rate-making methodology? 
another, in, 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 in uh, I'm sorry, as opposed to the ultimate determination of what would be an appropriate rate using TELRIC valuation? That's right, and that's a directive okay. to the state. That's a directive to the state. The state. But that is not. not if, if 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 you understand by the distinction what I understand by the distinction, it is not a directive to the state, which binds them in the ultimate rate that they can set. It binds. Yes, it does bind them. The rate. Then the I rate cannot. The, the, they cannot consider in, se- in setting the cost of capital historical cost. Well, but they don't have to consider it if they give you a high enough rate on your TELRIC costs. Let's assume they have. How do they determine let, what's let, Let's assume that your past costs were indeed ten million, and they're saying, "Well, it's just five because somebody else could do it for five if they came in right now." So long as they give you a higher percentage on that five, you're going to be in just as good shape as if they were giving you your fifteen percent on the ten. And how do they determine what's high enough? They, they you have determine on the basis of what your risk is, and and the it's risk of very, what? It's a your risk of continuing to put in capital. Which will which will not be which you will not be able to have taken into account in setting the rate. Well, I think you know your concurrence in, in, in Duquesne, Justice Scalia, made a very fundamental point, which is you can't talk about return and risk without implying a standard. What's the risk you're compensating me for? What's the risk you're compensating me for? Well, it's the risk I'm not going to be able to recover my capital. Right. But now, how, how can we figure that out it, without looking at what my capital is in relation to what you're allowing? Me? Right. That may all be true. And I have only one question to ask. And, it'd be, and I'm asking it. I don't know the answer. And I, uh, it may help or not help. But when I read the briefs, I noticed you started with an evaluation of the capital base of around $340, $350 billion. Right. And then when we look at the depreciated base, it comes to around 140, 150 billion across the country. And I got the impression from the brief that if, if, uh, that's the evaluation, marvel, dictu, my Latin professor used to say, the rate of return is okay. That, that, that however miraculously they've come to this, to this result, how, and I've read the criticisms. They give you a quarter of the telephone poll. They, they deduct 22 percent for there being competition. Uh, they assume that the most uh, efficient firm has the administrative costs of all the firms. They do all the things on depreciation that you say. They do the same thing on capital. And yet somehow the result seems to be that you're earning a fair rate of return on the depreciated value of the capital namely 140 150 160 billion in that range now 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 i'm asking a question to get an answer that's mixing the apples and oranges the that that's mixing the original cost uh of the hypothetical network with the depreciated value of our network what's relevant is what's our capital charge that's allowed or a depreciation expense before telric came along i was recovering let's say 340 billion over 10 years and i'm halfway through generally so i have about 170 to go in 5 years they come along and say under your new network you're going to get 170 because that's how much a new network would cost not one that's half depreciated and you get to c- recover that over 10 years so now my depreciation expense has been halved. So what you're saying is, in response to what I said, that I am wrong in saying that the Telric set depreciation, capital return, 
uh, and other uh, numbers, I am wrong in saying that they will earn you a fair rate of return on $140 billion. To the contrary, they will earn you uh, only half the return you're entitled to in that 140. Correct. And I can find that in the — is there anything like that in the record? Well, we — No. Well, by using the same depreciation schedule Mm -hmm. and hypothesizing a new network, Mm -hmm. that reduces my — that reduces my capital charge. Now, we have shown — Will fall from $140 a Telric valuation of those FCC numbers, which are on the two pages that they have all the — a Telric valuation of that will not end up with the number 165770 billion approximately. It will end up with a number 70 or 80. No. They will end up — they will say, we're going to imagine you have a new network and can depreciate it over the next 10 years, when in fact I have a network that I have five more years to depreciate 170 on. The effect of that is to half my recovery, because in five years I have to buy a new switch and I strand what I haven't yet recovered. But you're saying the Commission sets the depreciation period and binds the State Commissions the state, by that? The, well, yes. They, they, the, the, the Commission tells the States what to do. And the Commission says — Five-year depreciation, or ten-year depreciation, not five, or five, not ten. That the commission for, it forces that on the states. The, yes, the commission says what they mean can, by can economic you, can, depreciation. Okay, can you point to a, 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 sta- a commission statement to that effect? Yes, if, uh, this is this is a separate proceeding, but it's yeah. their application of Telric okay. in the Universal Service. They say the rate of return what, what must either be. What, what are you reading from? Paragraph 250 of that order. It's a, it's a, it's a published opinion, but it's not it, part of the record. It's not in the record. It's not in the joint appendix, but it's a pub, it is the parallel proceeding to this, where they were setting Telric for our universal service prices. First sentence of paragraph 4, the rate of return must be either the authorized federal rate of return on the interstate or the state-prescribed rate. In other words, they're saying it has to be the same rate of return as you have in the retail business, has to be in the wholesale business. Or, or, the, or the state-prescribed, was this last part, or the state-prescribed rate? Uh, the, retail you, rate. The well, retail rate. Would you read again the yes. sense? It, it has to be either the federal interstate, that's a retail rate, okay, and the only risk yeah, there. But let's not intersperse, okay. let's just read. Or the state's prescribed rate of return for intrastate, intrastate services. These are retail rates based on these, the these are These are rates of return. Now, tell me how it is that, that those statements with respect to rates of return determine a depreciation period. Well, the next paragraph, paragraph 5, says that we agree with those commentators that argue that currently authorized lives should be used because the high-cost areas are unlikely to face a serious competitive threat. Again, they are using existing depreciation based on a world of gradual competition in our retail business, and they are applying it to prices that they are formulating based on the hypothesis of radical competition that has commoditized our product and reduced our direct cost by half. Now, the fact is, this is a bifurcated proceeding. The Fed set the methodology. The states set the rates. The federal government has told the states what to do. And you'll see in our brief that when, example, where the state tries to use a different rate of return, the FCC slaps them down. It's very clear. Now, they've made an an admission in their own brief on page, on on their reply brief, which on on page uh, 12, note 8. 
And they say that the, 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 the risk is not just the uh, — this is uh, footnote 8. It says the risk is not just the risk of actual competition, but obviously you have to have a methodological risk adjustment. Well, what part of footnote 8 are you relying on? That second consideration is notwithstanding the incumbent's contrary suggestion implicit in any determination of the true economic cost of capital. Our problem is that's not what the order said. That's a post hoc brief. And if this Court were to rule that the rate of return has to be adjusted based on the hypothesis of actual competition, that takes care of part of the problem. But that's not what the rule says. It's not what it was implemented as. And now they are making this concession uh, in, in their brief. Now, that's only part of the problem. The other problem under forward-looking is they're using it to value our network at the time of dedication and our expenditures, as I explained. When we spend money, they act as if we're not really spending that amount of money. We're somebody else. And what they're using is the government coming up and taking someone's property and saying, I'm going to mimic away your opportunity to recover it. I'm going to imagine in a world in which you do not have the opportunity of recovering your property. If that, if that is the principle, that the government can take property and then in the name of mimicking competition say you're not going to have the opportunity to recover it, what's the limiting principle of that rule? You can mimic — when I put in $1,000, I need the opportunity to get it back. That's what I'm surrendering, to deploy it, to redeploy it, to use my wits to enhance and, and preserve its value. When I expend the money into a regime of compelled service, that's when those opportunities go away. And that's the point of the taking. I'm locked into spending the money. The government tells me who to serve, what to charge, what quality to provide, and I can't redeploy it elsewhere. In that circumstance, the government can't say, now I'm going to define your opportunity in this business as an opportunity that doesn't give you the opportunity to recover your cost. Because then that's just a roving license to, to, to go around, take property, and say, now I'm going to imagine you don't have the opportunity to recover it. The, the just compensation clause says, if you take away $1,000, you're taking away my opportunity as to that $1,000. You have to give me back an opportunity as to $1,000. And, what, and, and, and if, this is, if this is how you value property, I mean, this Court has been very clear. If you're going to invoke a market, it better be a real market. You have to have a real observable market. And this Court has held that when the government comes along and takes assets like this, it's the opportunity cost. This case is just like Monongahela. There, the state gave a company a franchise to build a lock and dam and gave it tolls to recoup its costs. So it had a franchise, a state franchise with tolls. The federal government said, we think this thing is worth X, appropriated the money, and took the lock and dam. The court said, well, wait a minute. You've come in taking this lock and dam, opportunity cost. You but, can't just make up a value for but here, it. But here, here, no property is taken in the condemnation sense of the word. That, that was a condemnation proceeding. Uh, just compensation. No, no property of yours is actually taken here in that sense, is well, there? No, that's wrong in two respects. First, there's actual occupation of our facilities and to our exclusion. They can occupy and exclude us from use of our Well, have facilities. they done so? Uh, yes. Is, Six it, percent of our lines have been taken in this respect. Now, but in any event, we have an expert. I mean, this is a utility case. This is not uh, a regulatory taking. And the quid pro quo for us having spent all this money 
is an expectancy. That creates an expectation interest. Yes, but it, it, I don't think it comes under the just compensation clause. The cases involved, you know, go back to Smythe against Ames, have not talked in terms of just compensation. They've talked in terms of fair return and due process. There is a constitutional principle involved, but I don't think it's the just compensation well, clause. Your Honor, I respectfully disagree, because I think that the reason uh, – when you dedicate property and there's a taking, the reason the government has to come up with a methodology to pay is precisely because it has to promise to pay at the point of the dedication. The methodology is the promise to pay. It's saying, you put this in, here's how you're going to get your money back. That's why we have rate-making. It is the government's promise to pay. It creates an expectation. And here they promise, well, and this takes us — You're saying every, every breach of contract by the government is a taking. I mean, that, that, that's — that's a little extreme, isn't it? I mean, every time, this court has recognized every time the government enters a contract, it creates an expectation, and whenever the government breaks a contract, it's a it's a take. It's not a contract, Your Honor. This is a dedication by a utility, and there are three things going on here, which this court has always recognized uh, create a property interest, such as in, in in Russell versus Sebastian. Number one, the government requires us to serve. This is compelled. Okay. Number, num- number two. Compelled because you agreed to it. That was part of the contract. You put up the money, and you'll, you'll have to serve, and we'll provide you with a reasonable rate of return. That was right. the deal. Right. A return in order to give us a fair opportunity to get our money back. And in determining what the methodology was for our initial investment, the government said, okay, guys, you put in all this money. And now I'm shifting to the historical part of the case. You put in all this money, and uh, here's the deal. Uh, you will be. You will not have the risk of devaluation, and therefore, we're not going to p- pay you a high rate of return. So we got low rates of return for all these years, and now they're retroactively saying we're changing our mind. We're going to exp- we're going to start revaluing your property, and we're going to apply that against your historical cost. Mr. Barr, may I ask um, one piece of this case? Is you made this investment for your local telephone business that? That continues. That's not touched by anything we're talking about now. You get that rate on your what is the vast majority of your business. That investment, you get that rate set by the local public utility commissions as as always. Isn't that so? So your telephone service business isn't touched by any of it. These use the same facilities. So this is occupying the facilities we use for our retail, and then it deprives us of but using. But you're getting back the lion's share. Well, yes, but that's like going to GM and saying, give away your Chevys because you're still making money. And then there's another piece of it that I'd like you to tell me how it fits in, and that is the quid pro quo of you can get into for the first time a new business, that you can get into the long-distance business. Doesn't that have some kind of value? No. No, I think if there was going to be some quid pro quo in the statute, Congress has to define it. Otherwise, the government agency can go up to someone and say, you know, we waive some procedure for you in the INS, and therefore now we're going to take away your car. The quid pro quo has to be spelled out by Congress. But in any event, we didn't get a special favor. It said once you purge yourself of any defect, you can act like everybody else. One final point that's very critical here, which is the language in the statute in 252, which goes on — it doesn't say just just and reasonable in 251C. It says just and reasonable. This says something else in addition, as opposed to hope, where the Court said there was no further specification of how rates were to be determined. It says, here, determinations of rate have to be based on the cost of providing. That provision can only make sense 
and only has an office in the statute if it is somehow delimiting how just and reasonable rates are to be determined. The government's view is just and reasonable, that gives us all the discretion in the world. There's other language here, and that can only be reasonably. It also argues that the word cost is ambiguous. Not in the context. You have cost and you have value methodologies. If the office of that statute, of that provision, is to delimit discretion as to what kind of methodology, the, the worst cost on its face refers to a cost-based methodology, not a value methodology. I reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Barr. Uh, General Olson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The colloquy that we've just heard illustrates why this Court has said over and over again, in the context of rate-making, in precisely the context we're talking about here, that the Court evaluates results, not methodologies, impacts, not means, and consequences, not techniques. You think that really means that you could come up here with, a, with, with, a, with an FCC scheme that says we're going to spin a wheel, and if it lands in the right place, you're going to get a good rate. If it lands in another place, you're going to get a bad rate. Well, there might we, be we couldn't say there, that that is irrational and, and does, does, is not designed to provide a fair rate of return. Don't you have the burden of showing that this is at least designed to, to provide a fair rate of return? The, this Court has said that the challenger of a rate has a heavy burden to make a convincing case that the outcome is confiscatory. Now, that burden can't be achieved. Justice Ginsburg's questions at the end of this colloquy illustrate that there are a number, and and the questions about depreciation and cost of capital illustrate all of the things that, the reasons why this Court has avoided deciding whether whether a methodology is acceptable or not. You you can't meet that burden with with, with a wheel. You can't meet that burden with a wheel. You're really saying that you can come up with a wheel and just say, well, you know, you can't prove that you're not going to get a fair return. Well, it can't be right. Well, the, the, the person who challenges the way the uh, Commission is setting rates has to, determ- has to present to this Court a, a, an explanation for why that the system that's developed, whether, whether it's spinning a wheel or whatever, and I, I, I won't um, engage in that um, hypothetical because we've got a several hundred-page record that looked into various different arguments with respect to various different methods of recovery. It, it listened to various di- — the FCC listened to various different experts. It listened to the incumbent uh, local exchange carriers' various different theories. It explained why it did. It developed a forward-looking uh, um, technology, uh, a method of evaluating the entry fees that would be but, based upon the statute. But it, se- it seems to me that necessarily — the hypothetically most efficient market will invariably, necessarily, result in a rate that is less than their actual cost. Well, no, I don't agree. I mean, it's just, that just has to be. No, it, it does not have to be, and this Court should wait to see whether that really happens or not. In the first place, this Court has said over and over again that the rate maker has the responsibility and obligation and right under the Constitution to consider the goals of the statute, different theories, uh, mixed, mixed um, um, uh, methodologies, and all of those things so that the Court — we can't determine — there's a lot of allegations in the briefs and in this entire case about the draconian ob, um, impact of this methodology — but as the colloquy that took place here with respect to both depreciation and return of capital illustrated, including in the precise paragraphs, 
that my opponents cited with respect to these things illustrate the point. Once the forward method, forward-looking technology method is applied, the state, the states are determining the rates which these carriers will receive for the elements, and they may be only elements of the system. They get to continue to operate the system, to make profit, to reimburse themselves for whatever cost they've embedded. They've said that they're not challenging the rates. They're not challenging the outcome. Uh, because once the forward-looking technology that the FCC specified in detail after a long, detailed, meth- methodical consideration said that then the states will look at questions of depreciation and cost of capital. The paragraph that you read back, Mr. Chief Justice, the sentence in uh, paragraph 702, which is on uh, page 396 of the Joint Appendix, specifically says... States may adjust the cost of capital if a party demonstrates to a state commission that either a higher or lower level of cost of capital is warranted, et cetera, et cetera. War- warranted by what standard? By the circumstances and, and the constitutional obligation to set a reasonable rate under the statute, considering this methodology and limited by the constitutional standard that this Court has articulated as the lowest reasonable rate, a rate that is not confiscatory. Are actual actual costs relevant in determining what's ultimately reasonable? Well, this Court has repeatedly said that it has refused to constitutionalize the embedded cost or historical cost formulation. Most recently, it said that in the Duke But warrant, case. it must have some specific standard. There must be some principle by which we can see if it's warranted. And, they, and their, their contention is that when you automatically guarantee them a lower than, 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 cost, than cost recovery, it must necessarily be unwarranted. I, I, that argument is made, but it's not substantiated by anything in the record in, in this it's long, elaborate, telric uh, articulation of, of numerous standards, both with respect to cost of capital and depreciation, because the very next paragraph. What about, never mind the next paragraph. What about the end of that sentence that you, that, that, that you didn't uh, read? Uh, well, that says that without a higher or lower level cost of capital is warranted without that commission conducting a rate of return or other rate-based proceeding. And the argument is made, and it seems to me a reasonable one, that that, that in effect says, without looking at embedded costs, because that's what a rate-based proceeding has, has traditionally been. In other words, that, that sentence suggests that you cannot set the, uh, the higher level, higher or lower level cost of capital on the basis of how much embe- embedded uh, cost the uh, utility Well, has. it must say that, uh, because that's precisely what is said in the statute. Um, Section um, 47 U.S.C. 252 D1, which is replicated on at the Joint Appendix at pages um, 21 to 23, Congress specifically said now that the, based upon the cost, and it, by the way, it is cost of providing, not cost. It says cost of providing. Uh, parentheses determined without reference to a rate. Uh, of return or other rate-based proceeding. So the fact that the FCC put that in its calculation of cost of capital was required by the statute. So I don't care if it's required by the statute or not. I care whether it, it gives these people any shot at getting back the, the capital that well, they've invested then, with a promise by the government that they'd be able to get a fair return on it. I don't well, care if it's required by the statute or required by the FCC. Well, you may not, Justice Scalia, but the, but the, the case has been presented on alternative bases. The heavy burden 
that the uh, local exchange carriers must carry here is proving that the embedded cost, historic cost requirement is either in the statute or in the Constitution. We demonstrate in our briefs, and it's relatively clear that it's not required by the statute, and we submit it's not required by the Constitution either because — You're saying it doesn't matter if they, if they end up not getting a fair return on billions of dollars that have been invested with the government's insure, assurance that they, that they get a fair return. Well, the, Is that what you're saying? It doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that ultimately this Court may have to decide — whether it gets a fair rate of return for what it is losing, the detriment it gives up when it allows competition to utilize some small portion of their networks under various different carefully calibrated circumstances. They cannot make that case yet. And, by the way, this the Telric system has been in effect for several years already. It has been applied with depreciation rates, and I was going to point out that there is latitude uh, in the State Commissions to set a depreciation rate, this is in paragraph 703, that reflects the true changes in economic value of an asset and a cost of capital that appropriately reflects the risk incurred by an investor, and so forth. Once you've seen the application of that, then you can determine whether or not there's been anything lost. This is, and Justice Ginsburg's point I have to return to, this is for use in certain markets by certain competitors of certain elements of the incumbent exchange system. If they're interested in recovering whatever the number is of $120 billion or $150 billion worth of embedded costs, are they expected, do they have a reasonable right to expect that they will recover that out of the, the, the fees paid for the elements that are used in a system that is in, uh, in, intended to fulfill the congressional goals? And if these are unconstitutional, that's a separate question. But the congressional goals that the Commission was required to dedicate itself to is to promote competition, reduce regulation, lower prices, and encourage the rapid deployment of new telecommunications technologies. This Court has said over and over again that when the rate maker — Not compensate investors. You said, since since it spelled out those four and said nothing about compensating investors, that doesn't have to be taken it, into it, it's, it, That's correct. The statute says nothing about compensating investors. It says — a just and reasonable and non-discriminatory rate based upon the, um, the various factors of the cost of providing the service. Now, the Eighth Circuit looked at that and said something to the effect that, well, the, the cost of carrying the extra load with respect to these elements, that would be an in, something called an incremental cost uh, or a marginal cost. It might be considerably lower. It might reimburse them in some way for some portion uh, of their capital costs. And by the way, the Congress does know how to deal with this um, issue when, it, when it's necessary in the Poll Attachments Act, which is 47 U.S.C. 224, I think, um, that the Court considered last week. Um, the, the statute specifically refers to uh, an allocation for a cost of capital of the telephone pole or the conduit or the right-of-way. It didn't say that in this statute. It said costs of providing the service. And then it had that exclusion that you mentioned, Justice Scalia, about rate of return, suggesting that the traditional embedded costways, to the extent that they are often used in rate-making, wasn't necessarily what the Congress had in mind. What this Court said in its decision when it revisited this case four years ago is that this statute is, in some respects, a model of ambiguity. And the Court went, went on pointedly to say, at the end of that decision, 
Congress well knows what it's doing when it writes ambiguous provisions and the word cost and the word value and the word rate of return and things like that in rate-making cases are ambiguous and they mean lots of different things under lots of different circumstances, those ambiguities will be clarified and implemented and filled out by the regulators to whom authority has been given. What happened in this case, I submit, is what Congress properly did. What this Court said in, I think it was in the Duquesne case, that these are hopelessly complex calculations that have to go into making rates and deciding what is a fair, just, reasonable, non-discriminatory rate of return in the rate-making context, especially something as complicated as this, especially where you're trying to bring in new competition in a regulated market, especially when you're giving in exchange, in part, in the statute, um, for allowing competitors to come into the local telephone markets, giving the, com- the local telephone companies, which up to that point had been precluded from being in the long-distance market, and they were being precluded from competing with other local carriers, they were given access to those two markets in exchange. When all of those complexities are taken into consideration, Congress was not going to be resol- able to resolve all those things. So what it did is it turned it over to an expert agency which exists for the very purpose of solving these problems, just like state commissions have the authority. In this case, a methodology was developed by the FCC doing exactly what it should have done, listen to the expert, listening to the competing concerns, and then develop a methodology which is forward-looking, which this Court has never rejected. In fact, in the Duquesne case, in footnote 10, at the very end of the Duquesne case, the Court suggested that that may be an entirely appropriate uh, methodology. Um, uh, in footnote sure, de- depending on, on how it's applied. Uh, General, yes. assume, assume, and I'm, I'm sure you, you, you don't agree with it, but, but assume that I, that, that I think this system has to not just be the spinning of a wheel, but it, it has to contain in it some, uh, some assurance that uh, they'll get a fair rate of return on money that they have invested with the government's assurance that, that they get a fair rate of return, assuming that that's the case. What is there in this, in this methodology that enables them to get a fair rate of return on their sunk capital? I'm, the problem, Justice. Just, just point to me the provision the, the, that shows problem is where that will be taken the, into fair, account at all. Is it fair, ever, ever anywhere taken into account? It is not taken into account what their embedded costs are with respect to portions of their network that may or may not have anything to do with the provision of the service or the network element involved here. We're talking about loops. We're talking about telephone numbers. We're talking about information used for billing. Whether or not those facilities or those network elements have anything to do with an embedded cost for a plant that was built 30 years ago for X billion dollars is something that's not discernible at the time the statute is written. Well, you're saying some of the costs shouldn't be counted. Let's just take the costs that you agree should be counted. Let's just take the embedded costs that do relate that do relate to these services. Well, I can't determine what those are. I don't know how the telephone companies have been allocating those costs on their books. I suspect that they do not allocate those costs on an element-by-element basis on their books with respect to this thing. At the end of the day... That's always been the case. That has always been the case. It's always been the case with rate-making methodology. So you you can come up now and say, 
It's always been so difficult. We've done it pretty badly. So we're going to solve the problem by just forgetting about giving No, Justice Scalia, you said in your concurring opinion in the Duquesne case, we look at, we, we look at consequences, not techniques. The balance of the Court said in that case we look at the impact, not at the methodology. We don't know what the consequences are yet. We don't know what the, what the, what the impact on the Now you're back change. to spinning a wheel. You've, you've departed from my, from my hypothesis. I'm saying, assuming that I don't believe that spinning a wheel is okay. Well, what we, you're telling me is spinning a wheel is okay. No, I'm not saying that spinning the wheel is okay. What I'm saying is that neither the Constitution nor the statute put prudent investment recovery, the prudent investment rule in this rate-making statute, uh, the statute that authorized rate-making. And well, we refuse to adopt that in uh, Duquesne. Precisely. In fact, that's why I was going to say, and, and, and put in a footnote, which I think is extremely pertinent. Footnote 10 said, constitutionalizing the prudent investment rule would foreclose a return to some form of the fair value rule, just as its practical problems may be diminishing. Now, Telric is a version of the fair market rule. The emergent, as the Court went on to say in the Duquesne case, the emergent market for wholesale electric energy could provide a readily available objective basis for determining the value of utility assets. In other words, the Court was foreseeing, in a way, the same argument that we were having today. That's why the Court rejected constitutionalizing the prudent investment rule, and that's why the Court signaled that there were other methods that would be available, including fair market um, um, methods that, w- that might, uh, in fact, be very practical and functional. This is a situation where I, I, um, I want to emphasize that we're dealing with a statute that didn't require the prudent investment rule. We're dealing with a decisions that go by this Court that go back a 100 years that have said, don't constitutionalize any particular methodology. But that is precisely what the, the local exchange carriers are arguing for. There are a number of premises in their argument to you. To say that you don't constitutionalize the prudent investment rule is not to say that any methodology will go, even one that does not enable somebody who has made investments under a commitment from the government to allow a fair return to recover that fair return. I mean, the, 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 the two are not, uh, are not mutually exclusive. Well, that, that's one of the things that I was, that Mr. Barr said that I think, um, the court would take issue with. And I think one of the justices in a question did. I think it may have been you, Justice Scalia. They weren't required to spend the money. They were given an opportunity to invest in an industry in exchange for which they received a monopoly for a long period of time. Now, the Congress of the United States has decided that we have to have competition. It would be wise to have competition in the local telephone market. They were never promised in any constitutional sense or any contractual sense, and they don't even allege that. And Mr. Barr said he didn't allege that there was a contract, that they would recover every nickel of their investments. In the Duquesne case, for example, the argument was made these were reasonable and these were prudent investments in nuclear facilities. And yet the state of Pennsylvania developed a system that did not allow them to recover those prudent investments unless they were actually being used in the delivery of energy products. And the argument was made, we have a promise or you have a constitutional obligation or you have some sort of requirement to allow us to recover those costs. The state of Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania said no. Well, what is the baseline standard that the utilities are entitled to rely upon? They're in- it's not like telling GM to give away Chevrolet. We know, we know that. 
a utility is different. Why is it different, and what is the baseline constitutional standard that they are, or fair compensation standard, that they are entitled to rely upon? The, the baseline constitutional standard at the end of the day, once you can look at the results, is this a non-confiscatory result? Is the lowest reason, this Court has said, is the Hope Natural Gas case, a number of cases before that, a number of cases after that. It's in the Smythe case, in that the ultimate outcome is a, the lowest reasonable rate, which is the lowest non-confiscatory rate. That is what they are entitled to in the Constitution under the decisions of this Court. Now, what the Court also — isn't it confiscatory to say that we're going to make you use your capital plant, which cost $140 billion, and we're going to allow you to depreciate it as though it were only $70 billion? Why isn't that? Uh, we, or the court that Congress might have said with respect to a transportation company, you've had it all, the, you've had the taxi service all to yourself for all these many years, and now we're going to allow um, uh, other some competition in there, and you and you've got some monopolistic facility, and we're going to let your competitors use some piece of it. Now you're not going to be the, and and we can determine what the value of that is in a competitive market, and we're going to allow you to recover some portion of the value. This Court has repeatedly said under the Fifth Amendment, to the extent that that is applicable, and I believe it is fundamentally to the rate-making cases and the utility cases, that it's a fair market value at the time of the taking. Mr. Barr says the taking occurs is when we were required to expend the money. No, that is not when the taking occurs. The, the taking occurs, if at all, when they have to surrender some portion of their system to allow someone else to use I, I it. Be, I want to be sure I have a chance to ask you a different question. Sir, I, I want to know uh, what, in your opinion, uh, the FCC was driving at uh, when it chose this particular methodology. What, in your opinion, after all, they had four or five possibilities, what basic economic question were they trying to answer when they chose this one as opposed to a different one? Well, they wanted to do what the, the — they wanted to accomplish a number of goals which are set forth in the preface of the statute, which I alluded to before, which is to reduce prices, to inspire competition. Yeah, but, but, but I don't want — I would like a little bit less generality than that, if, 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 if you can give it to me. Uh, what was their object? Uh, what, were, what did they hope that the rate set this way rather than set for example, another way well, they, would achieve. They, they explained that one of the important considerations, and it's hard to not deal in some generality, you know, you know, this area does, but one of the important objectives that they hoped to achieve was to develop a pricing methodology that would encourage new entrants to come into the market and pay fees that would allow them to enter the market at competitive rates and encourage them to develop new technologies. Right. If that's basically the objective, to get them to enter when they should enter, is that fair, to get them to enter when economically they should enter, not when they economically would be wasteful for them to enter? Yeah, I, see, I think that's a fair premise. All right. If that's a fair premise, why wouldn't they choose a system that would give them the following answer? Price, look at the service, that the newcomer wants to buy from the incumbent. Try to charge a price so that it reflects the real resources that that incumbent will have to spend, him, not some hypothetical person, to provide that service. Perfect answer, because if you can get it, then, obviously, if that number is higher 
then it will cost the incumbent in real resources to provide it. He'll build it himself. And if it's lower, he'll buy it. The perfect economic answer. Why would they not try at least to answer that question? Well, it seems to me that they did try to answer that ah. question, Justice okay. Breyer. Now, as that's you what I heard. Then you're right where I think you would. All right. But as you pointed out in your, in your dissent, your partial mm-hmm. dissent in the other, um, other time this case was before the Court, there are a variety of different methodologies yes. that various different economists look at and think that they can accomplish those kind of objectives. But this Court has said that we leave that to the regulators to do, and if at the end of the day there's some level of confiscation, then we can adjudicate I'm not worried about confiscation. I'm worried about the following. If that's what they're trying to do, then how could it possibly do that to write an order that says the depreciation rate and the rate of return that you are going to charge is going to be based upon not what it will cost you, but rather what it will cost some hypothetical firm that isn't there, let alone saying the same thing in respect to telephone poles, in respect to wires, in respect to efficiency of administration, uh, in respect to uh, a 22 percent discount for a competition that doesn't exist. In other words, how does this even come close to answering that question to look not at the cost of this firm, but at the cost of some hypothetical firm that, by definition, doesn't exist. Well, in the first place, we're not talking about replicating an entire firm. We're talking about replicating particular elements that are available to the the firms that wish to interconnect. And the FCC made it clear that we're not talking about we're not talking about hypotheticals any more than the embedded cost system would require allocating hypothetical portions of something that happened 30 years ago to a rate for a, for a particular small portion of a product that may have nothing to do with that. What the FCC's order does, and it explains this in relatively elaborate detail, it's talking about a reasonably available, efficient product in the marketplace that's comparable uh, that can form, perform a service that's equivalent to the the element that may have been built five years ago and may be obsolete today or partially obsolete today and may not be efficient, because if we don't do it that way, we will encourage non-competition or, 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 or prices that are inefficient based upon old services. And this was actually addressed by Justice Brandeis in the in the in the famous concurring opinion, and he says at the very end of his, his, his opinion, he says that, that, that surely the cost of an equally efficient substitute must be the maximum of the rate, rate based if prudent investment is to be rejected as a measure. Now, what the FCC did in this case, it made a compromise. It took the wire centers ex- as, as they existed, and they used the other elements based upon these reasonably efficient, effective, available alternatives. Now, the FCC has been criticized. Well, you're, you're, you're theoretically inconsistent. You should have done it all this way or all that way. The fact is that this Court has said again and again that the rate maker may make compromises, may have to balance one benefit to the incumbent with one benefit for the competitors. It may, it does not, the, the um, Duquesne case and I think the Hope case involved challenges of methodological inconsistency in the Court brushed right past past that properly because the rate makers, because to solve this hopelessly complex problem, might have to pick something from column A and column B. Now, at the end of the line, I want to make one important point, that even after the state um, commissions get finished with the process, the FCC included in its order 
um, a provision, it's paragraph 739, that specifically said, and this is on page, uh, Joint Appendix 422, this is after the application of TELRIC and after reasonable depreciation rates are set, and they haven't been — they have been set in some places, and they haven't been set in others, and there have been takings cases brought by the, the incumbent carriers. No, no court, as far as I know, has upheld a taking yet. And ca- costs of capital, uh, there's lots of flexibility. At the end of the day, um, paragraph 739 says incumbent local exchange carriers may seek relief from the Commission's pricing methodology if they provide specific information to show that the pricing methodology as applied to them will result in confiscatory rates. So TELRIC and the FCC's regulation provided lots of opportunities to get to the end of the day the right result in a manner that achieved these various conflicting goals of Congress. It did it in a way which might not be the best way, although it looks to me like a very conscientious effort to import competition, bring down prices, and to promote technology. But at the end of the day, after the commissions do their job, the expertise that you were talking about in your dissenting opinion, at the end of the day, the incumbent commission um, exchange carriers can come to court and say it was confiscatory and they have a remedy, or before that they may go to the FCC and they have an opportunity to present their case to the FCC. This, it strikes me, is the way it should be done. It may not be perfect, but in this rate-making area, this is the way it should be done. The expertise was given to the agency that has the expertise, and they were given an opportunity to fulfill the goals of Congress under the constitutional standards set by this Court. Thank you. Thank you, General Olson. Uh, Mr. Verley, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin by trying to answer Justice Breyer's question as to why TELRIC was a sensible policy choice by the FCC, and in so doing, I hope also to be able to address Justice Kennedy's concern about whether TELRIC underestimates uh, the cost that a company will face going forward. And then, if I, if I can, I'd like to turn to Justice Scalia's question about whether Elric offers a fair opportunity to recover embedded costs. Paragraph 679 of the local competition order is where the FCC uh, spells out in detail what its rationales were. And what the FCC said in paragraph 679 is that it wanted to adopt Telric to send, a, to send the right signals to new entrants about when, when to buy and when to build and to prevent anti-competitive behavior by the incumbent with respect to the pricing of network elements. And that's critical from our perspective. As a retail matter, the incumbents have every right under the state law and federal antitrust laws to price their retail offerings in these new competitive markets at their long-run incremental cost. That's what the state laws say. That's what the antitrust laws say. And therefore, if they could charge us the historical cost as for these key inputs, uh, the, the historical cost for key inputs, when they can charge retail uh, based on their long-run incremental costs, we could never compete. My, my, my question was, by the way, blank slate. I, I wasn't doubting that they could charge forward-looking costs. I was doubting that I, I find it difficult to reconcile with the state, and I, I think this, for me, is the issue. I mean, to find in, in 679, you know, they have a correct statement of the goal, and and then all these criticisms, which you're well aware of, uh, suggest that by choosing blank slate rather than this company's, this incumbent company's 
long-run incremental cost. They've departed so far that give them all the expertise you want, it's still awfully hard to uphold that, them. I mean, that's basically the argument. And if you're going to — Yes, thank you. And that, that's just not right. And their own experts, Professor Kahn in particular, and this is at page 155 of the Joint Appendix, concedes that that's not right, that if you set depreciation and cost of capital appropriately to reflect the risks of existing in the Telric world, then Telric will provide the full compensation. Now, Professor Kahn concedes that. I believe Mr. Barr acknowledged that at the beginning of his argument. It all comes down to what those depreciation rates and cost of capital are. And what the FCC said very clearly is that the states set depreciation rates. That's in paragraph 29. The regulation itself says that they must be economic depreciation. That means they must account for the full loss in value as a result of technological change. And in paragraph 702 of the order, the FCC said we expect states to set depreciation rates that take this into account, that take this risk into account. And my question, I don't want to distract you because others had a different question, had nothing to do with confiscation. My, my question was based, I'm leaving that totally to the side, you know, phrase, wildly incorrect set of economic signals to achieve the 739 goals for the reasons that you've heard and are listed in the briefs. But it, it, if depreciation and cost of capital are set right, it won't do that, Justice Breyer. And I believe that is what Professor Kahn conceded, their expert. And that is why, Justice Kennedy, the rate going forward, the Telric rate going forward, will not necessarily be lower than the cost that the incumbents incur going forward, because a rate, after all, is a product of three things. The cost structure, the depreciation rate, in other words, how few years you recover it, and the cost of capital, in other words, what the risk adjustment is. And so it could well be that the rates would be the same or higher, depending on how depreciation and cost of capital is set. You're, you're, you're not asserting that the states can, can kick up the uh, cost of capital rate on the basis of of the fact that the utility is not is not getting depreciation on its sunk costs. It, the, the, separate two questions out. I think there's two, two points to be made in there, Justice Scalia. With respect to what what the cost of capital ought to be set at under the regs and under the FCC's order is to reflect the risks of right. operating in this system. Right. So I think it does do what Mr. Barr claims it doesn't do. It, I think it very clearly does do that. Now, with respect to their sunk or embedded costs, I think it's a different question, because the, the issue here is whether the Telric in operation will produce rates and returns that in operation don't cover the, uh, the undepreciated costs still on their books. And the FCC made a specific finding. I mean, that, that ultimately, Justice Scalia, is much more an empirical than a methodological question. It is possible as a matter of logic and methodology for Telric to do so, depending on how the inputs are set. And therefore, it is an empirical question whether it will in fact do so. The FCC, in the notice of proposed rulemaking in this case, specifically asked the incumbents for evidence as to what that gap would be. The incumbents produced nothing, nothing. The FCC made a finding in paragraph 707 of the order that there was no evidence in the record to support the proposition that the adoption of TELRIC would result in significant stranded costs. 
But the FCC did more than that. It extended an invitation to the incumbents to come back with proof that there would indeed be significant stranded costs. That invitation has been outstanding for five years now. The incumbents have come back with nothing. But that's not all. The way this statute operates is the FCC produced a methodology, which is then applied in the states, in the states according to these rules, setting depreciation rates, setting costs of capital. Every state in the union has had a proceeding of that kind. This statute in Section 252E6 makes those proceedings reviewable in federal district court. Therefore, in every state in the union, the incumbents have had the opportunity to demonstrate that in application, TELRIC will produce rates that don't recover significant amounts of, of stranded cost. They have not succeeded anywhere in the country. Indeed, in the vast majority of states, they haven't even tried. And the reason is because there isn't a big gap. If, if that, that, assuming that, uh, his, uh, Mr. Barr's argument, I take it, was the paragraph 702, put, read in any disclaimers you want, and they have loads of them. But it says the starting point is existing depreciation rates and uh, capital rates, and that couldn't be right. And in addition, it strongly suggests if it doesn't state, and it does state, that you change those in respect to new competition coming in, uh, while the correct statement would be change it from the beginning, because whether new competition comes in or not is beside the point. You're setting in TELRIC the imaginary rate that would be set by new competition, and therefore, obviously, you can't have existing depreciation rates. I mean, I take it, I may not have paraphrased it correctly, but I think that's basically well, I think it's, that is his argument, but it's, it's not what's, what paragraph 702 says, and it's not what's happened in operation. The states have set depreciation rates that are downward departures. California, for example, cut the switching depreciation rates in half. So it's just not the case that that's what's happened out there in the real world. And there are dozens of — there have been dozens of opportunities for this case to be proven on the basis of a real rate in, in Federal District Court. And there — and as I said, in the few cases where it's even been attempted, it's been rejected, and most of the time it hasn't even been tried. And if — and let me try to get back, if I could, to that 340-180 comparison that's in the briefs and that we've had some discussion about. Here's why Telric doesn't produce — the kinds of results that that example suggests. It's because the 340 is way, way too high. The 340 is everything in the entire network and the entire corporate uh, superstructure that goes with it. And that is not all devoted to the production of local telephone service. It's, there are tens of billions of dollars of that are devoted to creating capacity for long-distance service. Billions and billions of dollars additionally are devoted to capacity for video service, for Centrex service, for other services that wouldn't be reflected in Telerik rates. There's just ten, you have this huge allocation problem if you take this. And this, I think, shows why Telerik is the practical answer here as well as the fair one. You would have a massive allocation problem if you took that 340. Because, first of all, you'd have to figure out how many tens and tens of billions of dollars got taken out for all these services that have nothing to do with providing local telephone service. Then of the $45 billion in that 342 that's devoted to corporate overhead, you would need to figure out how much of that is appropriately devoted to, yeah. to the local telephone well, service. Well, that, that used to be done uh, all the time, of course, to, well, to decide between local and, and long-distance phone rates, right? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, not as though, I'm sorry, it's not as though we didn't, haven't been pretending to do that for years but, and years. But, Justice Scalia, a significant amount of that goes to retail, which can't be allocated here. And then when you get done with all that, then you've got to take out the billions of dollars in phantom assets at the FCC's most recent audit of their books identified. And then when you get done with that, then you've got to decide how much of that was actually prudently incurred. 
And when you get done with that very long process, that number is going to come way, way down. Now, on the other side, the 180 is too low. And the FCC specifically said it was too low and warned against using it for exactly the comparison that Mr. Barr used it for, because it's designed to calculate universal service subsidies at the very most basic low level. So that comparison just doesn't hold up. And so the undepreciated part of the comparison, Justice Breyer, doesn't hold up either, because the number is not going to be — the undepreciated number of everything is $140, $150 billion. But the undepreciated part of what they would be entitled to recover under Telric is going to be a much smaller number than that number, because you'd have to take out everything I just described. So it, it just doesn't wash. There may be some difference with respect to some of the elements. Switching costs have come down. Of course, loop costs have not come down, and the loop costs are 48 percent, according to the FCC in this order, of the overall cost of providing service. And those have been stable over time. So the, the fact is, you just don't have a huge problem. You don't have a big gap. And that's why, Justice Scalia, when you adopt one methodology, when you adopt this methodology here, given the fact that it's an empirical matter, there's no reason to think there's a huge gap. There's no reason to think that the outcome will necessarily preclude them of the opportunity of earning a fair return. And that's why I think this case is an easier one than Duquesne, because at least in Duquesne, you knew how much wasn't going to be recovered as a result of the switch in methodology. Here, you don't know how much isn't going to be recovered, but what you do know based on the facts that I've just conveyed to the Court is that it's not going to be a very big number, even if you assume that all elements are leased. And, of course, as Justice Ginsburg's question pointed out, only 3 percent. It's not 6 percent. The FCC's most recent figures are 3 percent. 3 percent of the local network is being leased, which, I, which leads me to my, a practical point here, that if the world were the way the incumbents were describing it, it would be a very different place, in fact, than it is. We would be making all the money. They would be in trouble. The reality is they are making all the money, and we are in trouble. And the reason for that, and, 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 and indeed, they would be derelict in their responsibilities to their shareholders if they weren't taking advantage of this gigantic regulatory arbitrage opportunity to go into each other's local markets and take away all the customers. But they're not doing that. The reason they're not doing that is because the opportunity doesn't exist. This, the thing that's a fantasy, the thing that's hypothetical in this case, is the claims they are making about what this system is and the way it works. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Verrilli. Uh, Mr. Barr, you have a minute remaining. The Constitution doesn't dictate a methodology, but what it does say is that whatever methodology is selected, it ultimately has to be judged by this Court as to whether it provides us a fair opportunity to recover our costs. And therefore, if there, it creates a methodological risk, it has to compensate us for a methodological risk. We did show rates, and the government's position here is because this is a bifurcated proceeding. We have challenged rates. The government has taken the position the Fourth Circuit has held. We cannot challenge a methodology. We can only challenge whether the rate conforms to the federal methodology. This is the only place we can get review of the underlying problem, which is the methodology. This is an Ashwander case, and the government itself in paragraph 705 says that our interpretation of based on the cost of providing is permissible. What we're saying is the statute dictates the methodology here and avoids the constitutional problem. But even if you didn't find that, this rate, this methodology does create a method methodological risk, and we have shown that we're not compensated for it. We have shown rates in, our, in, our, in the record that have our recovery, have our revenue. That is the typical instance. They've had five years to show one state 
And, you know, it doesn't matter if there's one state. The question is, what's the risk of any state that comes close to allowing us to recover our prudent investment? And you can look through the record, and you can't find one. We have shown in Virginia and New York, New York's a classic, our loop rate, our cost is $33. Thank you, you, Mr. Barr. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.